3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.02 in the morning. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Sorry, just having a little mic issue. Ines is like, pay attention to me. <laughs> Move the mic around. I am here. I can see you. We sit across uh, from each other but, uh, with a Perspex screen between us so that we don't fight. Absolutely. Um, so we have a big show on for you today, and we wanted to make sure that in the lead up to International Day for People with Disability, which is falling on Saturday, the 3rd of December, so this coming Saturday, we covered a couple of important issues, um, and in particular related to the Disability Royal Commission, whose public hearings are ongoing. Um, So uh, just a reminder as well for listeners that there's going to be 12 hours of dedicated programming on 3CR this coming Saturday, so you can head to 3cr.org.au to find out more about that and make sure that you tune in. Um, But first up today, we... We're going to hear from Associate Professor Adam Bourne, who's the Acting Director of La Trobe University's Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society. And he caught up with me earlier this week to discuss a recently released report that he co-authored for the Disability Royal Commission, which explores issues of violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of LGBTQI plus people with disability. Now, this discussion does include mention of some distressing issues, distressing themes in terms of experiences of abuse and violence so we will include some content warnings before then and lines that you can call but just uh, please be aware that uh, that'll be our first thing coming up in the show and then we'll be joined by commissioner sue ann hunter who is a proud wurundjeri nure alum wurung woman and deputy chair and commissioner with the europe justice commission Sue Ann is also a child and families practitioner who has focused her career around using culture as a foundation for healing trauma and she joins us today to speak on the Uric Justice Commission's upcoming investigation into the impact of child protection and criminal justice system on First Nations people. Uric public hearings will also be live-streamed on the Uric website from December 5th. And then we'll be joined by Emma Gullidge, is the Director of Kingsford Legal Centre at UNSW. She joins us today to speak about how leading community legal centres have welcomed the passing of the government's Respect at Work Bill 2022. The bill gives legislative effect to key respect at work recommendations, including the creation of positive duty, which means that employers have to take reasonable and proportionate measures to eliminate unlawful sex discrimination. Yeah, and uh, for listeners who are potentially interested in listening to a bit more about the context around this, I did an interview with Emma um, on Women on the Line a few months back, so you can head to 3cr.org.au 
forward slash women on the line where Emma and I talked a bit about the context where uh, within which this regulatory change needs to happen. So it's really exciting to see that this has passed. Um, and finally, we are joined by Catherine McAlpine, who's the CEO of Inclusion Australia, to talk about the Disability Royal Commission's recent hearing into guardianship, substituted and supported decision making, which was held last week from the 21st to the 25th of November. And this hearing examines some serious concerns regarding how the rights of people with disability to participate in decision making are systematically undermined through the imposition of guardianship or substituted decision making. And this is an issue that Inclusion Australia has consistently advocated against as the peak national body uh, for people with intellectual disability and their families. So it'll be really, uh, really interesting and important to hear from Catherine about that. But that's what we've got on for today. Um, also, one more reminder is today is West Papua Independence, uh, oh, sorry, West Papua, uh, oh my gosh, my brain is just fried, the 61st anniversary of the raising of the Morning Star flag. There's a whole bunch of stuff on today and tomorrow. Uh, today there's an event uh, in the city and then there's an event at Black Spark tomorrow and we'll be catching you up on that in the headlines. So uh, please forgive my little brain fade there. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Did you miss 3CR's broadcast of the inaugural historic first Trans Pride March Melbourne on Sunday 13 November? Perhaps you want to break a binary and listen to it again. Well, either way, you can. It's now available for listening at 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. Join in the historic occasion and support our trans and gender diverse communities here in Nam. 3CR Radical Radio, proudly supporting trans and gender diverse people as part of diversity in NAM. Freecr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 1st of December. A group of 25 First Nations leaders have issued an open letter in response to Premier Mark McGowan's Youth Justice Summit. Called last week to address long-standing campaigns from community and nationwide condemnation of conditions of children incarcerated in Banksia and Casarina prisons in WA. The letter rejects Premier McGowan's comments labelling and demonising incarcerated children and suggesting that First Nations leaders were being too idealistic when demanding change. The letter also outlines six requests to the state, which include an independent inquiry into Banksia and Casarina Prison, the immediate ban of dangerous restraints and solitary confinement, the closure of Unit 18 before Christmas, a call to call a call to work with First Nations leaders to establish a task force to raise the age of criminal responsibility to at least 14 years old and that the Department of Premier and Cabinet form a long-term whole-of-government strategy co-designed by Aboriginal leaders. These requests come alongside the Northern Territory becoming the first jurisdiction to increase the age of youth incarceration from 10 to just 12 years of age. Aboriginal peak body NT support the reforms. However, they continue to push for further changes, stating that APONT commits to working with the government to eventually raise the age of criminal responsibility to 14 years of age. 
Also in news headlines, yesterday a historic native title, Consent Determination, was handed down on Wabeni Thursday Island after 21 years in the making. The determination is the first of its kind, covering approximately 65,000 square kilometers of sea and land, which is home to the interlaced cultures and histories of both Torres Strait Islander and Aboriginal communities. The applicants, Kima Kima Marim and Kukalanjung Nations, Kureg Ankamuthi Gudang Yadaganu people, jointly sought native title recognition, making this the first determination where Torres Strait Islander and Aboriginal traditional owners have formally collaborated to pursue land and sea justice in federal court. This landmark determination follows the formal return of the Nugurum property to the traditional owners, the Turung people in Victoria, on Tuesday. In other news, Scott Morrison has become the first former Prime Minister to be censured by Parliament. The censure or public reprimanding of a public official for inappropriate conduct by the House of Representatives comes after Morrison's failure to alert the Parliament that he had appointed himself responsible for an additional five portfolios, including health, finance, treasury, home affairs and resources, while appointed ministers remain unaware they were sharing power with Mr Morrison. Leader of the House, Tony Burke, said Morrison did not just fall below the standards of the House, he undermined them, attacked them, and abused them. While Mr Morrison defended his self-appointed ministries, claiming his decisions were made amid the extraordinary times of the pandemic, an inquiry found that most of his appointments had little, if any, connection to the pandemic. And finally, in headlines, December 1st marks the 61st anniversary of the raising of the Morning Star flag in Jayapura, West Papua. The Morning Star flag symbolizes the ongoing fight for Medeka, or freedom and independence in the Pan-Pacific region. Since its annexation by Indonesian in 1963, West Papuan have worked tirelessly to educate and resist brutal military occupation of their land. It is a global campaign leading the struggle towards self-determination and ending violent repression by the Indonesian military. In commemoration of this anniversary, Free West Papua will be holding a public action today for from 6 to 7 p.m. at the State Library in Lam. You can also attend the West Papua Solidarity Social hosted by the Black Spark Cultural Centre this Friday in, November, in Northcote from 7 p.m. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, 24th of November. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. Environmental Film Festival Australia invites you to EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema, a one-day cinema event celebrating Indigenous perspectives on climate, ecology, culture and custodianship. EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema includes two shorts packages and a main feature, all sharing unique stories which reveal the resilience of Indigenous people and the importance of protecting ancestral connections to country. Join us at ACME on Saturday the 10th of December for our first in-person screening since 2019. Tickets and passes on sale now at effa.org.au. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is a 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.13 in the morning and 
We're going to hear now uh, an interview I did earlier this week with Associate Professor Adam Bourne, who is the Acting Director of La Trobe University's Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society. And Adam caught up with me to discuss a recently released report that he co-authored for the Disability Royal Commission, which explores issues of violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of LGBTQIA plus people with a disability. So before we jump into that, listeners, please be advised that our discussion does include mention of quite devastating findings related to experiences of abuse, violence and suicidality experienced by people with disability based on their gender or sexual orientation. So if you wish to speak with someone about any of the issues that are mentioned in this interview, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. You can also uh, contact the National Disability Abuse and Neglect Hotline on 1-800-880-052. And LGBTQIA plus listeners may also wish to contact QLife on 1-800-184-527. That's 1-800-184-527 between 3 p.m. And, mi- and midnight. Or you can visit qlife.org.au. So this is just a warning before we head into that interview, and we'll provide all of those resources as well after the interview, and uh, everything will be in our show notes. And if you don't wish to listen to this interview, you can join us back in approximately 20 minutes. So now we'll head into that interview with Adam Bourne. I think maybe we should start off by talking a bit about the two surveys that you drew on to develop the report. So these are the Private Lives 3 and Writing Themselves in 4 surveys, which were conducted in 2019. And I understand these were the largest ever surveys of LGBTQIA plus adults and young people in Australia, respectively. So considering that these informed the current report, what kinds of data were gathered and how did they feed into the report that you've produced for the Disability Royal Commission? Yeah, sure thing. So these two studies that you just mentioned are ones that we conduct on a semi-regular basis. We have done for a number of years and they're designed principally to take a snapshot at a moment in time about the lives and the experiences and the needs of LGBTQA plus people as one survey for adults and a separate survey for young people aged 14 to 21. So they ask about a whole range of different topics, um, things like uh, mental health experiences, uh, violence, harassment um, or, or abuse that someone can experience on the basis of their sexuality or gender identity, experiences of coming out, of feeling supported by family, by friends, by schoolmates, by teachers, if it's in the youth survey, um, experiences of drug and alcohol use, housing and homelessness, engaging with healthcare services. It's like a really wide range of things that we ask about that are tailored to the kind of age group. You know, if they're a young person, more questions around school and education-based experiences and adults, more questions about what their life is like in the workplace and engaging with different kinds of health services. We also ask questions that are a bit more affirming. We ask people to reflect on things that are making them feel good about themselves, uh, the, the, the kind of positive forces in their lives that are helping to shape better outcomes for them as well. So that's what the surveys were about. Um, The Disability Royal Commission approached us um, about 12 months ago. They were interested to see that we had responses from quite a large number of LGBTQA plus people with disability in our surveys, which we were very excited to see ourselves. And they asked us, could we do 
a kind of more deeper dive, a more in-depth exploration of what those data were for LGBTQ people with disability, um, and to try to unpack some of those experiences and pull together a lived experience advisory group to help us think through, well, what do they really mean? And what should we be doing differently or be doing more of in the future to help ensure that um, they are that they feel safe and affirmed um, and are leading healthy lives as best as we can possibly accomplish? That's that's what we've set out to do. And that's what we were reporting on um, in, in this most recent output. Can you take us through some of the report's key findings and perhaps the findings of most concern that you do identify in the report's conclusion? Because I feel like the report really lays out fairly starkly some of the intersections between ableism, disability discrimination and violence on the one hand and then tra- homophobia and transphobia on the other and how LGBTQA plus people with disability are being subject to sort of compounded violences by virtue of um, you know, holding these identities and experiences. Yes. Um, I mean, my gosh, there is so much to say from this report and there's so many intersecting findings and and some really harrowing findings as well. And I, I do want to acknowledge that before talking through some of them. Um, some of the worst reported experiences of poor mental health and of suicide attempt or suicidal ideation, so thoughts of taking your own life, were observed among LGBTQA plus people with disability. If you look across all of the sections of the LGBTQ community um, in our surveys, those who were most impacted and were really having the hardest time were those um, queer people with disability. We saw really harrowing high, harrowingly high rates of um, suicidality in particular. Um, we saw that uh, almost one in six, so that's about 15 percent of young LGBTQA plus people with disability, um, reported attempting suicide within the last 12 months. And nearly 40 percent had attempted suicide at some point during their lives. Now, that is a- an astonishingly high proportion. It's high among all parts of the LGBTQ community. Um, but it's higher still among LGBTQA plus people with disability. And it's uh, these were really alarming. I don't think we've ever had data of this scale before to be able to understand quite the extent of, of mental ill health and, and kind of mental crisis, um, mental crises that we that we observe within this particular within these particular surveys, a very similar pattern of um, suicidal attempts uh, among people, among older, among LGBTQA plus adults, I should say, uh, as well. Um, outside of that, uh, and very much linked to that, were experiences of harassment or abuse. So quite a large proportion, more than half of LGBTQA plus young people um, with a disability reported experiencing verbal harassment due to their sexuality or their gender identity in the last 12 months. And that was quite a lot higher, again, than those people in queer young people in the survey um, who didn't have a disability. And similarly, uh, 41, nearly 42 percent of LGBTQA plus adults uh, also reporting that experience of verbal harassment or abuse and a very large proportion also experiencing physical and sexual harassment or abuse. And these two experiences, mental health that I talked about first and harassment and abuse that I talked about second, are 
intricately interconnected. There's a lot of very robust data, including that we report on in this um, in this most recent output, that that links these two experiences together. We know that people who've experienced harassment or abuse on the basis of their gender identity or sexuality are anywhere between about two and five times more likely to have attempted suicide at some point in their lives. This is the principal, the most reliable, the most consistent predictor of poor mental health outcomes among queer people is how we're treated by others. And that is even worse, even worse for people living with disability. And that, as you alluded to in your question, is very much a consequence of the compounding impacts of um, of the stigma and the discrimination directed towards people with disability layered on top of um, the experience people, the discrimination or the abuse people experience as on the basis of their gender identity or sexuality. Yeah, it is just, you know, heartbreaking looking through these results and seeing how, you know, poor these kind of outcomes are for people uh, when they're actually reporting on their their will to to continue living in a world that is, you know, ableist, homophobic, transphobic. And I think there's obviously so much that needs to change. But before we get into that, I was also hoping that you could provide a bit more detail on some of the specific concerns that you discussed in the report around young people with disability, because I know that there are some particular age-related dimensions, such as uh, discussions about disclosure, support and acceptance, and also around treatment in educational settings. Yeah, so this is one of those situations where it's fantastic that we see, um, you know, anywhere between 60 and 80 percent of LGBTQA plus young people with a disability feeling supported by their family or friends at the point at which they disclose their gender identity or sexuality. But that means still that there's, you know, anywhere between 20 and 40 percent of young people who aren't. And that's still a really, really high proportion. Uh, and what again compounds this problem is that many LGBTQA plus young people with disability don't have access to or easy access to LGBTIQ communities or LGBTIQ peers. The disability spaces that they're often, um, they often find themselves within don't necessarily, um, have the expertise, the understanding, the knowledge around gender identity and sexuality. They don't necessarily know how to respond to um, questions that emerge around gender diversity or sexuality. Uh, if, if the young people are living in more regional or rural areas, the opportunities just to connect for social or cultural events as a queer young person with disability, again, is very much inhibited. So... I, I, again, you're just kind of seeing a, a, compound, uh, a compounding of all sorts of um, of all sorts of issues layering on top of one another. I guess it's also important to acknowledge the other side of this. It's not just about a lack of understanding of gender identity and sexuality in disabled spaces, but it's a lack of understanding, recognition, and inclusion of people with disability within LGBTIQ spaces as well. Both sides of this equation aren't doing uh, aren't doing well enough to meet the needs of this inter of this really important intersection in our community. Of course, there are going to be some excellent examples out there. I have absolutely no doubt about that. And our job going forwards from this is to identify where those good example those examples of good practice exist what is it about those 
um, those settings, those queer settings, the disabled settings and spaces and services. What is it about those that is helping to ensure LGBTQA plus people with disability, young and old or young and adults, <laughs> um, feel safe, feel affirmed, feel supported, feel understood, feel included? Like what is it that's helping to 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 bring about those outcomes and how can we be doing more of that? Definitely. And I think with, uh, you know, the pandemic is still going, but I think the pandemic definitely brought to the fore some of those concerns about access and inclusion in a in a more tangible way for a lot of people that might not have considered it before. And there is a lot more discussion. And I really hope this is turning into action in queer spaces, thinking about how to improve access and inclusion uh, when it comes to, you know, members of our community that are disabled or immunocompromised. Um, so maybe this uh, leads us into some of the recommendations that uh, yourself and your co-authors made. So what are some of the main things that need to change at um, perhaps the level of government, uh, both state and federal, and then within the community sector in terms of service provision? And if you want to touch on this as well, um, just within the community more broadly. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so we, 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 in fact, articulate recommendations at really at those three levels. What can the government what can we be thinking about at a structural or a policy level? Um, and in that, we talk about some of the things that perhaps the NDIS and NDIA could be doing to ensure they're thinking about gender diversity and sexuality as they design, commission and fund services and interventions. So things like ensuring that, um, you know, people with disability uh, are receive support in accessing LGBTIQ spaces if that's something that they wish to do that caseworkers have a sufficient understanding of, of of gender diversity and sexuality such that they can respond to questions and queries and, and requests for support um, or investment um uh, in the in the ways that they which in that the, 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 the they want to utilize their um their allocation their financial allocations um and thinking, you know, ensuring that LGBTIQ strategies and policies where they exist recognize that this is not a homogenous group of people. LGBTIQ people are not all the same just because they're not cisgender and heterosexual. And like that doesn't always get recognized as much as it needs to uh, in policies and strategies. They, you know, we talk a lot about intersectionality here in Victoria, um, and that's fantastic. It doesn't necessarily always translate into how, um, you know, organizational policies um, are designed and delivered. I do want to give a big shout out for the Victorian whole of government LGBTIQ strategy, which does have a really, really significant intersectional lens to it. I think it's a really good example of how we can be doing this well. And I think it's a it's um, a kind of a, a, a an indicator of how other states and territories could be adopting a similar approach when they're thinking about similar strategies and action plans going forwards. I guess the second level, as you were talking about, there is service design and delivery, which I was alluding to a moment ago. It's about both sides of the equation in the disability services and the LGBTQ services, thinking about how are we meeting the needs of these communities to best effect. Um, and, you know, we've gotten very... We've gotten better over the years at thinking about certain types of disability. So often we have a tendency of thinking about um, physical access to a location. Is there a um, is there a lift? Is there ramp entry? Absolutely essential. Really, really important that we're doing that. There is a lot of diversity in disability. 
We need to be, you know, we can be thinking about sensory disabilities, intellectual disabilities, neurodiversities, and they require nuanced and quite specific ways of working to help support people in those circumstances. They're not rocket science. It doesn't necessarily require a huge investment of time or resources. Um, they just require some thinking in many respects about some forethought and demonstrating to people with disability that we've thought about you. We recognize that you might be a part of our client group and we want to make sure that you feel supported and affirmed. And then, as you say, the kind of third level is about the communities in which all People of all ability should be able to step into any social event, cultural event, um, in any kind of queer space, in any space, and feel included and feel safe and feel able to um, to express themselves in, in whichever way they feel um, is most appropriate. And, you know, these data particularly those around harassment and abuse and feelings of exclusion would suggest that we're a long way from that. Um, it really does. It really does. You know, there's a lot of LGBTQA plus people with disabilities saying that they don't feel safe within LGBTQ spaces. They don't feel supported. They feel excluded from a range of activities and events. They don't necessarily feel included um, or understood within the disability communities either. So they're falling through this gap in between the two of them. And that isn't that isn't okay, um, and that l- requires a lot of thinking um, and a lot of collective efforts to try to to try to resolve. Totally, and I think it's a a good message to take forward to uh, International Day of People with Disability this Saturday uh, to keep front of mind, um, so that you know there is this constant reminder that everyone is responsible for making these kinds of cultural changes. It can't just be up to you know one part of the community. Uh, so finally, where can people read the report and find out uh, about more about both the Disability Royal Commission and also your own work? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm at the Australian Research Centre for Sex, Health and Society. So if you Googled ARCSHS, ARCSHS, um, you'll find our webpage pretty quickly. Uh, and on there, you'll see a link. It's on the front page. It'll be there for quite a few months, I imagine, to this particular report. Also on the page, um, there's an easy read version of the report. Um, there's a there's a video that's produced by the Disability Royal Commission that talks through the report in small chunks and has a sign language interpretation of it. We've also produced a series of videos um, with LGBTQA plus people with disability. There are four videos in total and people with different diverse kinds of disability where they talk about their experiences. They talk about what's feeling like the challenges that they've experienced. And it also talks about the things that are helping them feel safe and affirmed within their communities. They're really lovely. They're really quite inspiring. It's really worth, they're only short, like between, you know, six or seven minutes, most of them. They're really worth having a watch if you have the time, because there's a lot of good ideas in there to prompt your thinking about what you as an individual or you as an organization can be doing to be more attentive to the needs um, of this community. Yeah, I think um, really the message there is listen to disabled folks about um, about what they need, not just in uh, queer spaces, but all together. Um, but I, I really appreciate the fact that there are a variety of uh, different ways that people in, can engage with the results of the reports and that, that center the voices of people with disabilities. So, look, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. An absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. 
Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard an interview with Associate Professor Adam Bourne, who is the Acting Director of La Trobe University's Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society, who spoke about a recently released report that he co-authored for the Disability Royal Commission exploring issues of violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of LGBTQIA plus people with disability. And once again, this discussion did include some distressing themes. And if you need to speak with anyone, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. If you're at risk of domestic, family, or sexual violence, you can call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. And LGBTQI plus listeners may also wish to contact QLife on 1-800-184-527 between 3 p.m. and midnight or visit qlife.org.au, and we'll have all of that information and more links in our show notes. And now we will go to an interview with Commissioner Sue Ann Hunter, who is a proud Wurundjeri Nuri alum Wurrung woman and a Deputy Chair and Commissioner with the Europe Justice Commission. Sue Ann is also a Child and Family Services Practitioner and will be joining us today to speak on the Europe Justice Commission's upcoming investigation into the impact of child protection and criminal justice system of First Peoples in Victoria. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Commissioner Suen. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, any time. Um, I think, can we, I know we have a lot to cover, but I know we'll start off with what you said in the media release, um, that we know the harm that has been inflicted on the stolen generation continues to traumatise our people, yet record numbers of First Nations children are being taken from their families at a rate 20 times greater than non-Aboriginal kids, and we're seeing a new stolen generation happening before our eyes. Could we start off with why First Nations children are so overrepresented in the child protection system? Yeah, I think the why is is the really big part of it. So in these hearings, we were looking at why um, and better understanding through these hearings about why this is happening. So why are we overrepresented? Why are the rates not reducing but going up? These are the questions that we want to know as well. So that's part of, um, of holding these hearings. But it is alarming that it's 20 times greater. And I've worked in this, this field for, for such a long time and it's getting worse, not better. So we need to remember that this, this commission is around you know, systemic injustices of the, for first peoples within Victoria. And that why question is so important as we go into these hearings. Absolutely. And I know that the... Europe Justice Commission is currently, yeah, looking into injustices against first mm. people's children and their families in Victoria and the child protection system. Could you tell us more about the actual commission process and what it really aims to achieve? So the commission is, you look me truth in Wamba Wamba language. It's the first royal commission into truth telling truth and justice within Australia and Victorian, led by Victorian first people. Um, and so we're looking at these systemic injustices from colonisation right through to um, to current, so historic as well as contemporary. Uh, with particularly uh, child protection and criminal justice, there are first two themes, for a better word. Um, 
you know, we need to look at the injustices of both because it's a bit of a pipeline, right? So the children that go in child protection end up in the criminal justice system, end up in youth detention, end up in prison. The systems are failing. Um, the systems are failing our people, and we need to know why. So we'll have three blocks of hearings. The first uh, of the three is focused on evidence from leaders of our Aboriginal organisations and service providers, um, as well as you know sort of leading experts in their area. Then we've got a block in February, and that's the opportunity for voices, a community voice of first peoples, that have been touched by this system. So there'll be there'll be hearings around that in um, in February, and then in March is the final block, and, and that will see government and institutions give evidence. That's where we'll be asking a lot of the why. Yeah. We need these hearings to gather the evidence to be able to have really strong recommendations to be able to implement at the end of this. Yeah, absolutely. I think getting to, you know, as you've mentioned, getting to the why is so hugely important in this case. And mm. I think also, as you've mentioned, the system has failed. I think failure is also such an understatement. These children and families... Um, do you think that the system has failed or is it set up to do exactly what it was really designed to? And as you've mentioned, there's so much like systemic crossover between like welfare, youth, criminal justice, quote unquote, systems. Um, yeah. Yeah. If looking at the, we've got to be really clear that we're not looking at individual stories, but those individual stories make up the collective systemic injustices that have happened. Mm-hmm. So we need to look at those for evidence and that'll guide us of where to go and have a look at. We know these are these aren't new issues. There's a lot of evidence around a lot of issues out there, and and we notice them. Is I mean we we've seen it, and and I think every week there's another story in the paper around an injustice. It's not new, but it's just increasing, not decreasing. And this is this is the issue. You know that some of these tragedies could have been prevented, or these outcomes. And there's multitude of reports and inquiries that say the same thing over the last decade. And bringing government to the stand to ask why, why, why haven't you changed these given there's so many reports? You know, we're, it's not lost on us this is nothing new and that we're still asking the same questions. The state needs to understand the story of colonisation of the land and the devastating and lasting impact of colonisation. And if we can join those dots, we have a better understanding that it's not just now, it's Colonisation didn't just happen back then, it's a continuation. And so to look at how the systems have failed us from the start right through now is really important. But it's also important that people understand and are able to join the dots of what happened during colonisation and how that is still happening and impacting on Aboriginal people today. Yeah, knowing the ongoing impact is hugely important. And I think also, um, I know that, you know, you are also a... I've worked as a child and family services practitioner um, and you could probably see every day how challenging it is for First Nations children and parents to actually navigate the child protection system. Would you mind speaking to maybe what you've, what you've seen or the general themes? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I've done that for 20 years. So I bring with me a lot of stories from a lot of kids and, and, you know, I bring them into this commission with me in my heart to, to get, to this, you know, if you're if you're struggling to even keep housing or to get a job or to get your children to school, like 
you and then you're trying to navigate a system that just wants more and more from you. Look, I know I'm, I'm a single mum, and as a single parent, I struggle at times, you know, to make appointments or to to go to things. And the system puts extra pressure. And I think we need to look at the system as a whole. Um, there's been instances where they say things: you can have your children back if you get housing. There's a housing crisis. How are they ever going to get housing? Or you know, you you you're struggling um, to get them to school. They may not even have a car. Um, or there's stuff going on that you know there's family violence. Or you know, there's other things than just the child protection system that go on in people's lives. Unless we nurture people through probably what would be one of the most traumatic things in your life, having your child, and then we nurture people. And at the start, we have a plan to get these children back, not just keep them in the system. We can we can do so much more than just remove children. Um, it, it is heartbreaking and and it is a bit soul-destroying at times, but, you know, there's glimmers of hope in there, and that's from our mob, that fight every day to get their children returned. And, you know, I don't take... I take those lessons that I've learned off my people within those systems. I don't take them lightly and I bring them with me into the commission to see, a, see some hope. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hope is important. And I think speaking on hope, how do you... I mean, how can we actually improve the system? What's actually getting in the way of doing that, do you believe? Yeah, so... Well, this goes to the heart of what we do or what we intend to do at Uruk. So our recommendations will address those systemic injustices. Um, the hope is that we uh, we aren't just a normal Royal Commission. We get to do things sort of a bit more our way. Um, that we do have coercive powers to bring people to the stand and, and answer the questions. But we also... Uh, treaties running at the same time. So our recommendations don't just aren't going to be something that just sits on a shelf. There's something that we hand not only to the government, but to the People's Assembly, which makes us as Aboriginal people accountable as well. And then we've got a driver to push these changes through. That's the, that's the hope in, in, you know, it's not just another Royal Commission. Can I also say we aren't just looking at the, the stories of doom and gloom of our people, but we also want to tell our truth about our stories of resilience stories of survival um, and how we've endured inequality, loss, sacrifice, injustices, and we're still here. And so we want to not just... We want to celebrate that we're still here, even though we're still fighting injustices. Um, And what we want from our people is to come forward and be able to give submissions through, through our website or we can support them, however that looks, so the process isn't just constant hearings. There will be private hearings. There will be roundtables. We will be going out from country to do them. They won't all be televised and they won't all be in an office or in uh, our hearing room. Um, the way we can improve it is make sure that we've got strong enough um, evidence and that a lot of people have come forward and shed light on their experiences. Um because that's the way we, we can investigate properly with enough stories to be able to to join the dots to the systemic injustice that we know is happening um, happening constantly. But these hearings that are coming up um, that start on Monday, they're live streams. And I really 
really encourage you know, all Victorians to go on the Yorook website. I'm just going to plug it here a bit. So it's uh, Yorook, which is y-o-o-o-k.org.au. All our documents were up there. All our submission forms were up there. Things we've already done. I do encourage people to look at our interim report and go through. We've got links to elders telling their stories. So make sure you're okay to, to listen to those. We're going to hear in the next few weeks stories of, of heartbreak of, you know, but they're not new. You just need to remember this isn't new. And I sometimes question myself of why we're still asking these questions and why do we have the government's inability to act um, when these have been brought up so many times. Yeah, they sound like they're going to be really powerful and dynamic and important. But, yeah, as you said, it's really important that all Victorians, Australians show up um, and really listen to what's being said because it is devastating that it we're still hearing the same thing over and over again. But yeah. there is hope in the in the Commission. And um, thank you so much for joining us here today, Commissioner Suet. I hope you have um, a lovely day and we'll definitely put all the links uh, to uh, everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Bye. So we've just heard from Commissioner Sue Ann Hunter, who is a proud Wurundjeri, Nure, Alumurong woman and Deputy Chair and Commissioner with the Uruk Justice Commission. And she joined us today to speak on the Uruk Justice Commission's upcoming investigation into the impact of child protection and criminal justice system on First Peoples in Victoria. And the public hearings will be live streamed on the website from December the 5th, and we'll put that in our show notes as well. Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Crime Scene Australia, it's not just an ordinary comic. How would you describe this comic, Charlie? It's a comic book for adults. We're taking Australian history, turning it on its head, and making it real history. It's funny. And it's dark, it's supernatural. We've got to launch the comic. Robbie and I will both be there from 6 o'clock. Carol Carpenny from Us Mob playing a bunch of songs. We do a bit of a smoking ceremony to bring everybody in. To all the listeners out there, if you're interested in coming along, it's Thursday, the 1st of December, 6 o'clock at Wolfhound Cafe on Brunswick Street for Crime Scene Australia. When you know your history, you know, you know where you're coming from. A 3CR supporter. And now uh, you get a second interview from me and no break, haha. Um, <laughs> and now we will be hearing from Ella Go- Emma Gollidge, sorry, who is the director of Kingsford Legal Centre in UNSW. She joins us today to speak about how leading community legal centres have welcomed the passing of the government's anti-discrimination and human rights legislation amendment bill, which is the Respect at Work. And the bill gives legislative effect to key Respect at Work recommendations. Hi, Emma. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thanks for your time. Absolutely. Anytime. So I think with the community legal centres, they have welcomed such an amazing bill amendment that has been passed, which is called Respect at Work. Could you tell us more about this bill and why it is so important? Yeah, I mean, this bill is about 40 years in the making, so we're thrilled to see it pass Parliament this week. What this bill does is really change the way Australian law deals with sexual harassment. Community legal centres have really been on the front line for 40 years, helping people who've experienced sexual harassment enforce their rights. And what's become evident over time is that our laws did not really prevent sexual harassment and did not adequately support people who who experienced sexual harassment. 
And I think in the past five years, particularly with the Me Too movement and a wider conversation, which the Respect at Work report really documented, we're having a conversation about how we can change our responses to sexual harassment so people are safe at work. And really, the legislation here provides the legal framework to give people increased legal protection and change the way we approach sexual harassment to reduce harm. I think one of the most important recommendations, I mean, they're all important, but I think the one that really stood out to me, and I know it's central to the bill, is it's a call on employers to take reasonable and proportionate measures to eliminate unlawful sex discrimination. And I know this has been going on for a while, but what does this actually look like in practice? It's a real game changer because at the moment, under the old law, Basically, it really relied on really brave individuals taking a case and saying something happened to me and it was not okay. And you can imagine that's a huge burden on an individual um, to, to carry that weight. But also there's huge risks involved with people doing that. And really what the Sex Discrimination Commissioner's report showed was that approach didn't work because sexual harassment is widespread in Australia. That one in three people have experienced sexual harassment. And also people experience it for very long periods of time. So we're talking about incidences that go over a really long time. And many people say that they actually think their workplace could be doing more. So what the positive duty does is it removes that burden on an individual to do something after the harm has happened to think about how we can all work in workplaces and create safe environments. And so a positive duty is going to be a huge game changer in terms of thinking about how our workplaces can think about risk can um, be alive to the issues in the workplace. We don't have a situation, we won't be able to have a situation where the employer just says, I think everything's fine, I'm not going to do everything. They're going to have to take active steps to actually find out. And really part of that is thinking about gender equality in the workplace because we know sexual harassment occurs and unsafe situations happen predominantly for women in workplaces that are not um, that do not have gender equity as well. Absolutely. It sounds like such an important step towards ongoing accountability and that it's not just left on one person to be courageous. Um, and I think with how important it is to keep the bill uh, uphold, upholding these rights, uh, there is a review that is also involved. Can you tell us more about what the importance of a statutory review is of the bill? Yeah, community legal centres felt really strongly that we just can't put um, create new laws and not come back to them and think about whether they're working or not. And so the Sex Discrimination Act, when it happened in the early 80s, was a huge moment for Australia. But we really haven't gone back and thought about, well, was that achieving its aims? You know, it's taken over 40 years for us to significantly kind of, um, uh, you know, legislate changes to that act. So a statutory review is really important because this positive duty is a really big change. The Human Rights Commission is going to be monitoring what's happening with that and we want to make sure that the Human Rights Commission is properly resourced to be able to do that. And so we just don't want to kind of create law and not come back and think about is it actually helping people. We really want to be reducing the harm, reducing the incidence of sexual harassment and improving standards and practices in workplaces. And so I think it's just good practice not to have a set and forget um, kind of way of dealing with law reform because if we don't keep looking at it, we know that harm continues. Yeah, and I think also following on from harm, um, you've stated in the media release that, you know, the issues of costs in human rights matters is a key access to justice for so many clients. And even the strongest discrimination cases can often lose in court due to tactical points. How do you think that 
cost creates a barrier to seeking justice? And how will the bill actually support the minimization of these barriers? Well, the person with the deepest pocket shouldn't win the case, you know, and especially when it's someone, an individual worker, bringing an action against an employer, the resources are really, you know, tipped in the employer's favour. And so costs become really important in terms of thinking about how people can enforce their rights. And anyone who's had a legal problem knows that, unfortunately, lawyers are really expensive and going to court is really expensive. So that can be really overwhelming for someone who's just in a workplace who's had harm done to them, who may not be able to work effectively in their chosen field. To have what we call a cost risk is really a huge impediment to people enforcing their rights. What that essentially means is that if you're not, if you don't win your case, it could be that you'd have to pay all the costs in the matter, which can be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, what Respect at Work did was start a conversation about how we can increase access to justice and reduce cost risk. Where we've landed in terms of the government and the bill is the government has recognised that the cost risk is really real and that it's different for different people in different contexts. And so what we're going to be doing and working with the government is thinking about how we can increase access to justice by looking at costs. And so that's going to be a separate process and consultation. And that's really welcomed by community legal centres because cost barriers for our clients is a really real issue. And we need these laws to be real for people. We want people to be enforcing their rights and to do it in a way that doesn't kind of put their future financial, you know, position in, in jeopardy or risk, you know. So we need people to be able to feel that they can enforce their rights and they're not putting their financial future at risk. Absolutely. And that is so unbelievably important because that cost should not be a barrier to seeking justice for yourself. And I think for the Respect for Work Council has also stated that the bill is a huge, huge first step, but is obviously just in, uh, the beginning in terms of reforming federal anti-discrimination laws to operate more consistently and reflect the intersectional nature of discrimination. What does... Um, in your opinion, intersectional advocacy and legislation look like in practice? Well, I mean, we're all complex human beings and it's, you know, very um, uncommon just to experience one type of discrimination. So Respect at Work was really clear that if you experience sexual harassment, you are more likely also to experience at the same time race discrimination or disability discrimination or other forms of discrimination. So we really can't have a conversation about sex discrimination and sexual harassment without thinking about that happens to a person who's got lots of complex identities. Now, at the moment, the changes to the bill are really focused on sex discrimination and sexual harassment. So when we talk about intersectional experience, we're really saying we also need to think about, you know, how we deal with race discrimination, how we deal with other types of discrimination. And the other part of it is that this is the main way Australia protects human rights. We don't have a Human Rights Act in Australia, so it is really important that we keep revisiting discrimination law to make it easy to use, to make it effective in reducing discrimination and to make it accessible to people. So I'm really heartened, though, that we're having this conversation. We've moved so far in the area of sexual harassment in a relatively short amount of time, and I think there's much more cultural awareness because people have really bravely spoken up about their experiences and I think there's real um, a sense that we need to revisit this stuff, that discrimination in all its forms is very harmful and that we don't want to live in Australia where that proliferates, whether that's in our workplaces or in our educational institutions. So I think that's an ongoing conversation. And, you know, community legal centres always feel like there's more work to do. So we never think, OK, we've done that, we've fixed that problem. 
So we're really um, excited to keep thinking about, you know, what are the future areas where we can be working. Yeah, I feel like that's really exciting, honestly. And yeah, as you said, legal centers always, there is always more work to do. But I think from what I'm hearing, there may, like a really key theme is like the information legislation needs to be accessible and practical and intersectional. And lastly, do you have anything else that you'd like to bring attention to or really highlight or something that you wish people knew about the bill? Well, I just think that, you know, for a lot of people listening today, we've had a lot of conversations about sexual harassment and a lot of people will have experienced sexual harassment and it might have raised issues for them or they might be thinking about experiences that they're currently having. There are a lot of free legal services around willing to help, you know, and to listen to your story and just give you your options. There's a really great um, portal that the Human Rights Commission has developed. So if you Google Respect at Work, there's legal information there. And so... The two things I would say is change is coming and so thank you to everyone who's spoken up and who's having those conversations in their workplaces who's really also called out unacceptable behaviour because that's the other part of it that we all need to speak up. But also that, you know, these conversations are very distressing and so if people feel like they want some confidential support or help, have a look at the Respect at Work portal because there's a lot of free help available. Amazing. Thank you so much. We'll also put that in our show notes. But hope you have a really wonderful day, Emma. Thanks for your time. Thank you. You've just heard from Ella Gollidge, who is the director of Kingsford Legal Centre at UNSW. She joins us today to speak about how community legal centres have welcomed the Respect at Work Bill, and they spoke about the legislative effect of key Respect at Work recommendations, including the creation of positive duty, which makes employers take reasonable and proportionate measures to eliminate unlawful sex discrimination. Tune in to Rest is Survival, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast. On 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm, we're talking about the role of rest in the anti-capitalist revolution. With programming by multiply marginalised disabled people and disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2022. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.59 in the morning. And we're going to head to a new track. Um, a little bit of a language warning with this, but this is a new one from Dobby and Elfresh the Lion. That's not me. When they give me all their money, yet they get to pick a dilly on the board game. Keep it on lock like a padlock B. Took away the key, put the latch on me. Breathing in deep and attach on three. Press down and I'm back on B. How many weeks do my tracks come P? It's gonna take a while, better have your tea. It's a little unclear when I look up in the mirror, but I'm here, right? Wait a minute, that's not me. Uh, yeah, that's not me. Juggle of my jealousy, that's not me. I let the pressure get to me, that's not me. Now I'm walking around the city yelling, that's not me. Am I gone by the wayside? That's not me. Will they give up in the meantime? That's not me. Well, I let it all go by. 
them with the hook like back when I'm on a mic day and I day low they would never get it right need a mediator if we gotta be together mind of the media make it a little better put away the pitta patter in a minute with your belly up and I'm a kick a bucket take a different to the peanut butter I'm popping off of the mouth I feel like calling them out we got a villain attack so I'm aggro thinking of good for nothing you're pushing off on the button to make your brother react like a dad joke if anybody complain and take a fall of my energy getting in a debate with them then they get it consider look on the face they never wanted to yawn I bet they think it's a game I don't play with them so you look down on me Can you just back off, please? I'ma play tic-tac-toe till I get my gold till the crown's on me. Yo, what do you think I cost? How can I get that job? Why do you need my name? You just want to take that box? But you know what? I'm not a puppet, y'all. Gotta get my shit together, I know. Forget about it, what I am, brother. Am I gone by the wayside? Will I get up in the meantime? Will I let it all go by? Gotta do what I've been doing now. Let me say something. For many years, I ain't saying nothing. They used to run the game, now the game running. I look them in their face, yeah, I stay on it. That's why I ride the beat, yeah, I'ma stay on it. We can talk about the struggle, bro, I came from it. Southwest City, put my name on it. Got love for the syndicate, we more than the immigrants. Banging on the doors till we break something. Banging on the floor, that's not me. Doing it for y'all, that's not me. Give a fuck about awards, that's not me. Sacrifice the cause, that's not me. Dumb it down for claps in them, that's not me. Guy Sebastian, that's not me. Smile and wave with them, that's not me. I'll play the game for them, that's not me. See you look down on me. Can you just back off, please? I'ma just do what I do when I get it. I'ma give what the platform needs. What do you think I cost? How can I get that job? Why do you need my name? You just wanna take that box? You know what? I'm not a puppet, y'all. Gotta get my shit together, I know. Forgetting who I am, bro. And that was the new track from Dobby and Elfresh the Lion, That's Not Me. Hopefully a little bit of a banger to wake you up this morning. Um, and you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 8.55 a.m. Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Crime Scene Australia, it's not just an ordinary comic. How would you describe this comic, Tom? It's a comic book for adults. We're taking Australian history, turning it on its head and making it real history. It's funny and it's dark, it's supernatural. We're going to launch the comic. Robbie and I will both be there from 6 o'clock. Carol Carpenny from Us Mob playing a bunch of songs. We do a bit of a smoking ceremony to bring everybody in. To all the listeners out there, if you're interested in coming along, it's Thursday, the 1st of December, 6 o'clock at Wolfhound Cafe on Brunswick Street for Crime Scene Australia. When you know your history, you know, you know where you're coming from. A 3CR supporter. And now we will go to a song by Tia Costello. It is called Say It To My Face. Hope you had a good day Wipe that smile off your face What would your mother say? Is she proud that you act this way? How do 
gift-giving meaningful this year with a festive gift from Children's Ground. A First Nations-led organization, Children's Ground creates holistic, long-term change with First Nations children, their family, and community. Choose from gifts designed by Children's Ground artists or our change-making digital gift cards. You'll receive a digital card to email or to print at home. It's the gift that's guaranteed to arrive on time. Go to childrensground.org.au to shop or learn more. Children's Ground is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. You just heard the track Say It to My Face by Tia Gostello. Okay, yeah. I feel like, uh, sorry, Tia, if you're listening by any chance, I feel like I've gotten your name uh, wrong almost every time that we have played one of your tracks. So this is my very belated apology to Tia Costello, um, and that was Say It to My Face. Um, I've actually been looking for our little language warning in our grid, and I couldn't find it. Um, but, yes, a belated language warning for that. But I think a fantastic track nonetheless. And uh, we might head to another community service announcement. Uh, again, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yeno Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Kamanacha on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. 
business will well be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. is shining, or at least it's attempting to, so get your picnic blankets out and gather your mates and stock up on your summer wine. We're so excited that our summer wine fundraiser is back. This year we're selling delicious wine generously provided by 3CR supporter Jamshade Wines. Just $20 per bottle, or you can snap up even more of a bargain by buying in a dozen or half dozen lots and mixes. Order online 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or call the station on 9419 8377 during business hours. Jamsheed Wines is a 3CR supporter. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done by Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by Law. 6pm Tuesdays. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.12 in the morning, and we are now joined by Catherine McAlpine, CEO of Inclusion Australia, who joins us to talk about the Disability Royal Commission's recent hearing into guardianship, substituted and supported decision-making, which was held from the 21st to the 25th of November. This hearing examines serious concerns regarding how the rights of people with disability to participate in decision-making are systemically undermined through the imposition of guardianship or substituted decision-making, and this is an issue that Inclusion Australia has consistently advocated against. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. 
Yes, of course. And I'm really glad that we could have you on to discuss this, considering uh, that this hearing has happened so recently and also in the lead up to International Day of People with Disability. Um, so before we get into the specifics of the hearings, would you mind telling listeners a bit about what guardianship and financial administration orders are and how they tend to operate in practice? And maybe uh, go a bit as well into into where the work of public guardians and public trustees fit into this. Sure. So guardianship orders are legal orders that give a person, who's usually called a guardian, the power to make decisions on another person's behalf about their personal lives. And those things tend to be issues such as where you live, healthcare, access to services. Administration orders give a person, who's called an administrator, the power to make decisions on another person's behalf about their finances and associated legal affairs. And the majority of guardianship and administrators are private. So that is their family members or people known to the person on who, the, who is the person that the decisions are being made on behalf of. But there are public organisations sort of as, that are supposed to be as a last resort where there is no one else to do it. And so therefore a public guardian or a public trustee is appointed to make decisions on another person's behalf. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, it's important to have that background knowledge and also uh, this understanding of what it means to have something available as a last resort going into the discussion about this hearing. So the Disability Royal Commission's public hearing uh, number 30 was held between the 21st and 25th of November, and that focused on guardianship and administration laws and policies and did pay particular attention to how substituted decision-making impacts the rights of people with disability. So can you tell us about some of the key issues that this hearing sought to investigate and why they centred those concerns? Well, they firstly, they wanted to listen to people and examine assumptions about capacity and decision-making, um, particularly fluctuating capacity at different times of a person's life. They wanted to look at the barriers for people with disability participating in guardianship and administration proceedings and the impact of decisions on their lives. And we heard people talk about not, not even knowing what guardianship was, not even knowing that an application had been made on their behalf to take their own decision-making rights away. They wanted to consider why substituted decision-making, such as guardianship and financial administration, isn't, appears not to be used as a last resort. It's, it seems to be used more routinely when it's supposed to be a last resort. And why models of supported decision-making are not more widely used as an alternative to substitute decision-making around Australia. They wanted to look at supported decision-making models of people with disability and consider safeguards as well. Yeah, and um, I know that Inclusion Australia, given your position as a peak body, a national peak body for people with intellectual disability and their families, um, you, you have specific expertise around this area. So uh, what were some of your key concerns related to this hearing, considering the specific impact that substituted decision-making does have on people with intellectual disability? And um, how do current arrangements in Australia work to undermine Australia's obligations, for example, to things like the, the UN Convention on the rights of persons with disabilities? Yes, well, we, as the representative body of people with an intellectual disability and their families, we have a lot to say on this issue. The, uh, the issues that we're particularly concerned about are that a guardianship is not used as a last resort, that increasingly we see uh, pushes towards substitute decision-making. So, for example, we see people like NDIS providers 
pushing for people to be under guardianship so that a contract can be signed, which is not a last resort. You know, a service contract can be signed, which is not an issue of last resort. We see, again, the push... um, we got a, we heard a story just recently about a family in South Australia who uh, were trying to make an NDIS a, a, a speech for a OT appointment on behalf of their adult family member with an intellectual disability, and the receptionist wouldn't let them make the booking because they were the legal guardian. So what you have is systems pushing families and pushing people towards substitute decision making instead of. Um, supporting their rights to make their own decision and supporting what's known as supported decision making, where people have pe- where people with an intellectual disability or other perceived capacity issues uh, have people around them to support their decision making, but actually don't take their decision making rights from them. Yeah, and actually, I was wondering if you could maybe give our listeners uh, a little more information uh, for people who might not be familiar with what supported decision-making looks like in practice and and how there's this affirmative negotiation of um, capacity but also, you know, agency and dignity of people with intellectual disability. Yes, the Australian Law Reform Commission in 2014, this is one of our frustrations, in 2014 um, put out a paper called Towards Supported Decision-Making in Australia with four decision-making principles. And what that says is that people, principle one is the equal right to make decisions, that all adults have an equal right to make the decisions that affect their lives. Principle two is support, and that people require support in decision-making must be provided with access to the support necessary. And that sort of support includes information in accessible formats so people can understand it, and, a dis- and people who can support people to understand the issues. So what we saw at the, at the Royal Commission, for example, was a young man um, who uh, was who was um, put under uh, administration orders, so financial administration, who didn't know anything about it and then was given some budget training. Whereas supported decision-making would have, approach would have said, how about giving him some budget training before you actually take his rights away? How about you support him to make good decisions around his finances before you take his rights away? Principle three is will preferences and rights. So that means that the will preference and the rights of people who may require decision-making support must direct the decisions that affect their lives. And we saw this impacted during COVID where families who, for instance, might have been anti-vaccination then didn't let the preferences of the people with disability who might be in a different scenario with a different risk profile not have the, be able to make their own decisions around um, not not, they ha- not have their own will and preferences and rights uh, respected. And then the fourth principle is, is called safeguards, and that is interventions for people who may require decision-making support, including to prevent bu- abuse and undue, undue influence. And that is a really important role where sometimes people are put under guardianship orders to actually remove them from um, abusive situations. Mm, yeah, and it, and it does seem um, that what we've heard out of this public hearing from people uh, giving evidence of their own experiences um, and also advocacy organizations talking about people that they've worked with is that there's a lot of skewing towards automatically assuming that that principle four that you've discussed uh, needs to be uh, put in place for people. Um, and so 
people's decision making is completely usurped um, and their participation in making decisions about uh, issues that affect their life uh, is, is sidelined so often. So what kind of things need to change at the federal and state or territory levels in terms of policy and legislation to really center the agency, dignity and independence of people with an intellectual disability as much as possible? It's particularly state and territory uh, legislation that needs to change. But since the Australian Law Reform Commission made the recommendations, only Victoria has moved. So Victoria actually has a thing called a a legal legal role called uh, supportive attorney. And that means that a person with a disability can, or any person, but particularly a person with disability, can appoint someone that they trust into a supportive attorney role. And that actually gives that person a legal right to support people at the bank or support people in, 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 in different settings. So it means that you can have someone with you uh, to support your decision making. The other states and territories haven't done that. And so what we see is a real inconsistency around the country. And what we see is some, for instance, in the Northern Territory, we see some certain populations, such as First Nations people with disabilities, way overrepresented in guardianship where we see particularly people who are involved in the, um, you know, out-of-home care systems sort of getting shunted straight into guardianship when they turn 18 instead of being given the supports they might need to live an independent life and make, learn to make their own decisions. Yeah. And I, oh, go, go ahead. I was just going to say another issue is uh, best interests, that for children uh, it's usually, you know, uh, decisions have to be made in the best interests of the child. But for adults, will preferences and rights is not actually the same as best interests because not all of us make decisions in our own best interests. You know, people take risks, people eat unhealthy things, people, you know, do things that are not great for their health. They, people are allowed, to, adults are allowed to make their own decisions. And one of the things that guardianship uh, doesn't allow is for anyone to, you know, honestly sometimes have any fun. Um, that that they must make all of their decisions, you know, only the best best decisions on, which takes away freedom, you know, everyday freedoms that people don't that take people take for granted. Yeah, I, I think that's such an important part of this as well because I think so many of these discussions come back to. Um, you know, those, those key, discern, uh, sorry, key decisions around legal concerns and that sort of thing. Um, but it also, it also affects things like what if somebody wants to get a tattoo or a piercing, right? Um, you know, there's all this sort of uh, stuff that might be affirmative for people and very personal for people. But once guardian, oh, sorry, once um, decision-making powers have been entirely taken away or undermined, you know, people are left with so little agency in terms of just you know, how to affirm themselves in the everyday and participate in activities that, you know, all, all adults participate in, in terms of, uh, you know, risk-taking behaviour within limits. Um, look, Catherine, is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up? Oh, only that it's really great to have this conversation because uh, there's a whole lot of community attitudes in terms of the, you know, presumed capacity or co- presumed ability of people with intellectual disability to make their own decisions. And there's not a lot of understanding how with really good support, including being allowed to make decisions when they're young, 
because we all get better at making decisions by practising, uh, are really important to the development of people with intellectual disability. So to have this sort of public conversation where we'd really challenge some really long-standing community attitudes is really important and I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, definitely. Anytime. And thank you so much for making the time to, to talk with us about this and kind of tease out some of these concerns, because I feel like for people that might not be familiar with supported versus substituted decision making, this has been a very valuable conversation. Thank you very much. And one thing that people forget is we all get support to make decisions. We all get advice. We all talk to the people that we trust. It's something that everyone does. That is, I, I think that is a fantastic note to leave it on and definitely a, a really important reminder for people that are engaging with some of the coverage of the hearing. So, Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. And that was Catherine McAlpine, the CEO of Inclusion Australia, who joined us to talk about the Disability Royal Commission's recent hearing into guardianship, sub substituted and supported decision-making, which was held from the 21st to the 25th of November. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Perhaps we should just jump into our rundown of the show for today. So maybe... I will kick it off. So first up, we caught up with Associate Professor Adam Bourne, who is the Acting Director of La Trobe University's Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society. And he caught up with me earlier this week to discuss a recently released report that he co-authored for the Disability Royal Commission exploring issues of violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of LGBTQIA plus people with disability. And in that interview, there were some distressing themes, and we will be including information about uh, resources and supports in our show notes. So you can head to 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday dash breakfast, where we'll upload our podcast after the show with those resources. And then we were joined by Commissioner Sue Ann Hunter, who's a proud Wurundjeri Nura alum Wurrung woman and a deputy chair and commissioner with the Uruk Justice Commission. And she joins us today, she joined us to speak about the upcoming investigation into the impact of child protection and criminal justice systems on first peoples. And then we were joined by Emma Gollidge, who is the director of Kingsford Legal Centre at UNSW, to speak about the Respect at Work Bill and particularly how it gives legislative effect to a lot of recommendations, including employers needing to take reasonable and proportionate measures to eliminate unlawful sex discrimination. And finally, we were joined by Catherine McAlpine, CEO of Inclusion Australia, to talk about the Disability Royal Commission's public hearing number 30, which examines serious concerns regarding how the rights of people with disability to participate in decision-making are systemically undermined through the imposition of guardianship or substituted decision-making um, inappropriately. And this is an issue that Inclusion Australia has consistently advocated against. And finally, just a reminder about uh, some things happening today and on the weekend. So uh, today is obviously the 61st anniversary of the raising of the Morning Star flag in Jayapura, West Papua. And uh, in commemoration of this anniversary, Free West Papua is going to be holding a public action today from 6 to 7 p.m. at the State Library in Narm. And you can also attend the West Papua Solidarity Social, which will be hosted by Black Spark Cultural Center this Friday in Northcote from 7 p.m. And then uh, on Saturday, it is International Day for, of People with Disability, and uh, 3CR is going to be having dedicated broadcasting, uh, 12 hours of dedicated programming um, this Saturday the 3rd, so you can head to 3cr.org.au to find out more information about that. Um, and we'll just play a little bit of information about that now. Tune in to Rest is Survival. 3CR's International Day 
of People with Disability broadcast. On 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm, we're talking about the role of rest in the anti-capitalist revolution. With programming by multiply marginalized disabled people and disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2022. That is all we have time for today on Thursday Morning Breakfast. Um, We will catch you next week. We will catch you next week. Hope you have a lovely week in between then. Yes, uh, it's going to be a sunny weekend, so slip, slap, slop, folks. (laughs) We'll catch you then. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.